This episode is sponsored by Ethical Property. For 25 years, Ethical Property has been the workspace of choice for the UK's leading charities, social enterprises and campaign groups. Places for organisations to collaborate, grow and become the change makers they need to be. With a wide range of spaces available from single desks through to spacious offices throughout the UK, why not take a look at what they offer by visiting ethicalproperty.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse, Senior Multimedia Reporter. And I'm Andy Ricketts, Acting Editor of Third Sector, the leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Coming up in this episode, we have news editor Stephen Downs, who's going to come and talk to us about the financial crisis engulfing hospices. So that'll be something to look forward to. But first, Lucinda, we've allowed you to go out and about. You've left the offices <laughs> and you've been travelling all the way to uh, swanky Vauxhall on Southwestern Railways to do an in-person visit. Tell us about what you've been doing. Yes. So this week I went to Comic Relief to meet Poonam de Cruz, who is the head of Comic Relief's Poverty and Injustice Programme. And her team looks at the structural inequalities and injustices that cause poverty and then the consequences and then looks at ways through programming and such like to address those issues. And yes, it was a slightly different format to our usual podcast episodes. And the point is to try and demystify the profession a little bit. So get behind the scenes, find out what's it like to work in various roles in different charities, essentially get a slightly more immersed perspective on some of the issues that we cover. Good. Well, I can't wait to hear it. So um, we'll play the interview now mm -hmm. and then we'll catch up about it afterwards. Hi, Lucinda. Welcome to Comic Relief. Thank you very much. Lovely to meet you. We are here on a Friday, so it's quite a quiet day, right? Do you guys have flexible working? We do, yes. So since COVID, most of us are in the office um, two days a week. Oh, is that Jamie Oliver over there with a red nose on? It is, yes. <laughs> You'll be able to spot a number of celebrities as we walk through with red noses on. The uh, funding team predominantly kind of sits in these two areas um, here, but as we've kind of um, adopted the sort of hybrid working as well, we're tending to try and sort of all sit together as an organisation rather than just kind of in teams as well. So it's just a really nice feeling all being together. Who is in your team? What does it, your team look like? So we are a team of seven. So I manage five members of staff. So four of them are portfolio managers who are managing some of our relationships with FCDO, um, our relationships with DCMS, some of our uh, investments that are funded from our unrestricted funding. So from, say, the Night of TV, for example, and Red Nose Day. Tell me what a typical day looks like for you. Wow. So I guess probably first thing to start, there's no typical day. It's so incredibly varied. Uh, it could be anything from designing a programme with um, some of our experts by experience and our co-funders and sort of balancing those priorities and what they look like. It's providing some direct support to our funded partners. So that could look at things such as any challenges they're experiencing, um, if they need a bit of advice or support, or if they're looking to repurpose some of their grant. 
to leading workshops to managing the team it's incredibly varied no two days are the same but it's yeah that's what makes the role so exciting as well and what about your personal journey into this career how did you get into grant making and what sort of drove you down this path sure so international development is something i've always been interested in and worked with charities since the age of 16 almost so in lots of different guises but they've always been um quite small to medium-sized charities and ones which have received grants rather than ever made grants and so part of my role um, previously has been sort of the person writing those fundraising bids has been designing programs with the communities that we're operating in and having done that for quite a long time I think it got to the point where I was really keen to see actually how I could influence the other side for example and so um, grant making came up there was a lot of I guess participatory approaches that um, I'd adopted as um, when I was working in those small to medium-sized organizations so thinking about co-creation in program design thinking about co-creation around monitoring evaluation and learning and safeguarding and I was very keen to explore actually how can we do that on the other side of grant making and actually think about how we could, I guess how we can kind of influence grant makers to be better connected to the issues that they are funding, better connected to the people they're funding, thinking about sort of some of the common irks as someone who worked in that organisation who was applying for grants and um, thinking about, I guess, some of the common challenges and tensions that I'd come across as well. And I guess the, for me, there was a drive to actually think, okay, how can I influence that on the other side and actually try and create an ecosystem that feels a bit more kind of responsive to the needs of funded partners so that was the main driver to come into this space and you you mentioned some of the sort of frustrations or difficulties when you were on the other side applying for those grants it must have given you a very different perspective to be sitting in the grant makers chair did you have sympathy for the funders of the the people who were reviewing the applications that you submitted in the past yeah absolutely it was a real moment to be on the other side, I think. So when I think about to sort of um, applying for funds, some of the kind of aspects that we'd often do is we're very mindful of this kind of maybe a small box, there's maybe 500 words count. And actually there's that kind of real, I guess, <laughs> desire to kind of share absolutely everything about your organization and everything about your project in that space and you sort of slip into those habits of where you want to just tell this funder how amazing you are actually it can sometimes not necessarily answer the question when I now see that on this other side I guess you know sometimes at Comic Relief you know we have open funding calls but and we receive huge volumes of applications and actually I remember our change makers fund in um, 2020 we received over 700 applications for that then it was all hands on deck to shortlist those and Funders just don't necessarily have that luxury of time. They really do want to engage with organisations, want to learn about the incredible work they're doing. But I think just recognising, I guess, the huge pace of working that has to happen to actually turn around funding calls quickly, because obviously everyone who's applied for funding, they don't want to wait nine months to a year to find out if they've got funding because actually you know the sector particularly now more than ever needs that money now and so there's something about um yeah that pace of working as well which um i had a lot of sympathy for as well because yeah i recognize it's not necessarily the easiest job either and so this change makers funding call um where you had 700 applications how many people were were looking at those 700 applications 
so we had a, a whole team kind of working on that. So um, it was approximately um, 14 people. But then I think given the volume of applications that we then received as well, it, it then kind of became almost all hands on deck. So kind of um, asking across the directorate for additional support and for bringing in some of our consultants who sort of support during periods of high volumes of work to kind of support with that shortlisting function as well. So you've mentioned applicants not always answering the question or trying to get too much information across, which makes it quite overwhelming um, for, for people who are reviewing the applications. What other pet peeves do you have when it comes to reviewing applications for funding? I think I'd always really suggest answering the question. And I know that sounds so obvious and I never want it to be um, sort of condescending in any way possible. But having been on the other side, I really understand how easy it is to slip into wanting to share everything so I'd really be focused on using stories of change for example if you have them and examples from there any data that you have as well and I think specifically on some very highly specialized issues as well there may not necessarily be you know national reports available that doesn't matter if you've done your own research that is equally valuable and credible so please do include um, that information as well because it just helps us to kind of build that case and really kind of understand the communities that you're working with and some of the issues that they're facing another area i think is um we're seeing now kind of comic relief is um, increasingly doing this is being quite intentional about a pre-application phase so providing kind of eligibility criteria so almost an eligibility quiz for example and that is really designed to hopefully save applicants time when applying to us as well so they can really drill down actually whether they are eligible for applying and it's a very tricky kind of balancing act with sort of balancing well it might fit into this versus actually if it doesn't clearly fit into this is it actually worth someone's time to invest in actually completing an application process to us as well if it isn't a strong fit it may not necessarily be funded and may be excluded so I guess I'd really kind of interrogate the eligibility criteria quite a lot. And so the applicants really do need to tick all the boxes because I know that there, there seems to be an increasing trend in trying to improve accessibility in job applications for example where often there's a little caveat at the end saying even if you don't meet all of this criteria we, we'd still love to receive an application for you um, does that not apply then for these kind of grant funding? So I think it really depends on the funding call and I think then for the sort of part two of this I would say another part of the pre-application process we're doing is question and answer forums as well so predominantly held on Zoom so actually anyone outside of London can access that and actually that would be that time to really kind of ask about that um, if you have any kind of concerns around eligibility if you want to ask any questions about the actual questions itself about any other kind of criteria find out a little bit more about the fund for example who is co-funding it with us um, if you want to find out a little bit more around other formats to apply in that is the moment to um, basically ask those questions and we'd really encourage anyone who's thinking about applying to a specific fund that we have live for people to attend those even if you don't necessarily have specific questions yourself um, it's an open forum it means that actually you can kind of listen to the other questions that other applicants are asking as well and that information may be valuable to you as you kind of completing the um, application along the journey and have you got any funding application windows coming up 
for the moment we don't so we've just um concluded uh red nose day and we've um raised a huge amount of money and uh we're now sort of consolidating what our priorities are going to be looking like going forward so in our new financial year we hopefully have an update brilliant and you you mentioned that you came into this role because you wanted to influence um the direction that funding bodies and grant making in general is going have you seen much of those changes that that you wanted absolutely i feel like at the moment there are some really great initiatives out there to start changing the way that funders work with communities and how we fund them um, a lot around how kind of funding practice is evolving so some examples of i guess really good funding practice that we're now starting to see is that we're seeing quite a number of initiatives that have kind of come to the fore which is around shifting power in philanthropy it's around uh sort of decolonizing how aid is given it's around um, thinking about where participation sits so that's participation of what we call a comic relief experts by experience and how they feature in the process when we are launching a funding call so Ivar, for example, on their website, they have something called an open trusting commitments. And these are basically eight commitments that funders can sign up to, which is around uh, thinking about how we responsibly manage grants and relationships in a way that um, is respectful and increases the confidence of the communities we're funding in us. And some of those commitments have really been around, you know, don't waste people's time. So things such as having a pre-application process and being really clear on what that eligibility looks like. It's looking like around kind of what the questions we're asking in forms, for example, and actually really kind of interrogating what we're asking. Is it relevant? Is it proportionate to the amount of funding that we have available? And yeah, just really interrogating what we're doing with that information. So they're a really great source. We know Fix the Form as well has really been at the forefront of championing uh, funders to really start changing what information we include when we are opening up funding calls. And again, in a similar way, I've undertaken their own research and have sort of listed on their webpage sort of common areas where funded partners are getting increasingly frustrated with funders because for example, we're asking information that is, you know, in the public domain. So that could be, for example, annual accounts or a list of trustees, for example. So again, that's something that we're being quite responsive to as well and interrogating actually how can we start changing our practice around that. And we have sort of started doing that. So an area of work that I manage is around our racial justice work. And uh, we've just had a funding call close on that. But as part of that process, we actually got rid of an application form in its entirety. This fund, it's co-managed with what we call a fund reference group. So these are made up of six experts by experience who've been recruited as consultants, are representative of communities experiencing racial inequality, have extensive grassroots experience. And so they've been working with us across that fund. So we were able to, for example, do away with a paper application. Instead, we went straight to a process where actually we shared questions that we would like to ask these funded partners and actually then the onus was on us to set up say a zoom meeting for example gather that information and the onus was on comic relief to actually complete a form and then for transparency we then shared with the funded partner who was applying for funding the completed form which they then signed off and sort of verified that the information was correct 
you know, it meant we weren't asking them to share with us publicly available information because we were able to, again, go on charity commission, shifting the onus and I guess the the burden of applying and really trying to be positively disruptive in the kind of where that power sits in there as well. And a lot of the feedback that we've received from that process has been that was a really welcomed approach and it saved them a huge amount of time, but also it allowed them to actually really have quite an open and honest conversation with us rather than trying to fit everything neatly in a box as well. So there's pockets of of really good practice that we've been very intentional about sort of um, rolling out across the organisation. And what about um, both at Comic Relief and also in the wider sector? Do you think there is much room for improvement still? I think so. I think we're all on a journey and there's definitely some really great examples of good practice out there as well. I do think, though, we still have a little bit more of our journey to go, though. And um, I think some of that will also be around aligning to sort of principles of thinking about kind of where power sits in this process. And I think we need to be quite honest about as funders, the amount of power that we hold, but also where that can be problematic in terms of the own biases that we might have, the ways that we are doing things may not necessarily speak to the communities that we are supporting, down to, you know, very simple ways of sort of having just a written form being the only way to apply for the vast majority of funding out there. And we're seeing great examples of where other intermediary funders they've again gotten rid of an application form or they may be offering applicants to apply in different languages for example we're also seeing um, audio applications rather than written applications so absolutely I think there's pockets of brilliance going on and I think it's a real opportunity to learn from that and take that forward but uh, yeah I think we've got a little while way to go just yet but I think we're on the right track. Great. And just a final question for you. Thinking about people who are maybe interested in joining this world, in pursuing a career in funding, in grant making, perhaps if you were considering recruiting new member to your team, what would your advice be to those applicants and to people who are looking at starting a career in this area? So anyone who's interested in working in this area, I'd really recommend work with some of those small, medium-sized organisations, um, those grassroots organisations. Get as much experience as you can out there. In many ways, working with small to medium-sized organisations, you sometimes you end up getting most of your experience because actually you tend to wear lots of different hats. So you might be the person who's writing the bids as well as the same person who's also managing the programme. And actually the experience that you're able to build up will really set you up well f- to actually then join, I guess, the world of funding and grant making as well. Because I think that wealth of experience of understanding, I think the pressures and the tensions that um, different communities are facing around kind of accessing funds, um, around delivering projects, I think that makes you a really sympathetic, I think open grant maker when you actually do break into the funding world, it means that experience is really tangible to influence how systems and processes within that funder can be changed and be made better effectively and fit for purpose for those seeking to apply for funding. And then once they've got that experience in these smaller grassroots organisations and they can sort of see how the sector operates and now they think they're ready to take on a role at a funder what next what would make their application really stand out 
I think just having a real understanding of the skills that would make them a good funder and grant maker. So really being able to kind of see the full picture, being able to identify and sort of critically review things like safeguarding policies, funded partner accounts, for example. I think also being able to, where they've had that experience with other organisations as well, And if they've been in a role where they've supported those organisations to further develop and strengthen that process, again, those are skills that will be really well suited to being a funder as well. Because again, uh, with seeing increasingly now being a funder or grant maker, it isn't just a transactional relationship. It's much more hands on. It's much more around providing what we call a comic relief funder plus support. So that's thinking about all the additional areas of support that we provide in addition to just an investment so that could be around uh, organizational strengthening support around different areas so again all of that is really transferable on the other side and uh, would probably really yeah stand out in an application process as well brilliant well thank you so much for lifting the lid on your work and your team and yeah it was a real pleasure talking to you thank you very much Well, that was great to have a behind-the-scenes look at what goes on at Comic Relief. What really stood out for you from your visit, Lucinda? Yeah, I loved it. I really liked going and seeing Poonam in situ, meeting a couple of members of her team, although it was a very quiet day given Friday and their flexible working policy. One thing that really struck me was her motivation for going into the world of grant making in the first place and Mm. the fact that it stemmed very much from her experiences of working for much smaller grassroots organizations and being on the other side of all of that and seeing that there clearly was a need for change and improvement and perhaps fine tuning in some of the grant making processes and seeing that or believing that the way that (laughs) she could go about influencing that change was actually to join an organisation like Comic Relief in its own right. I thought also very interesting, which is obviously part of a much wider discussion at the moment in the sector of placing more onus on the funder in Mm. terms of who's making the decisions. How do you shift the power within this whole funding ecosystem? She mentioned at Comic Relief, they use their experts by experience to really open up the context around where this money is going to be spent and have people from within that context influencing the decision-making process at the grant-maker level. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting as well just to hear how the grant-making process is changing because obviously we've had hundreds of years of charities giving out grants. I mean, we were looking earlier, weren't we, about the, you know, one charity that we found that had been giving out grants for 900 years, the City Bridge Trust. And it's really interesting to think that for almost all of that time, the process has broadly been the same. The individuals ask or the charities and the money is given. But obviously now with the onset of digital, things are really moving on in terms of how applications are processed. And it's really interesting to hear Poonam talking about how they're changing their application process to be more responsive to the people that they're trying to help, but also how they're trying to make it easier for the charities that are applying to them. Yeah. In terms of opening up communications between the grant maker and the potential grantees, mm. you know, she really emphasizes that that's important to avoid wasting time 
On their side, she mentioned 700 applications and of which 20 grants were given out in the end. But then also on the side of charitable organisations, many of which are, are very small, they don't have the resource, they don't have the time mm. to be preparing loads and loads of really onerous applications. They, you know, they should be getting on with with the work. And it's it's great to see an increased awareness amongst the grant makers to reduce the burden on them in terms of let's leave the grant maker to go and find the financial accounts mm. for a particular charity because that's publicly available information. I was quite staggered by that. Yeah, I mean, that is surprising because it does put a bigger burden on the grant maker themselves. But then I suppose when you think about it, you know, a lot of charitable grants probably over the years have been hoovered up by large organisations that have people who are professional fundraising bid writers they do that for their job, but your small grassroots charity is much harder for them to tap in or find any of that kind of experience. But they will need help just as much as some of these other bigger organisations. So it's good that they're trying to level the playing field a bit and, and make it easier. I liked hearing about that they're even accepting audio applications now. You mm. can just kind of, yeah. I, I sort of <laughs> would like to hear more about how that works. They just record a voice note or something and then here's, here's our application done. But it's great that they're actively taking on responsibility for wanting to broaden the amounts of people that they can help and trying to you know make it a more equitable system yeah and then one area that we didn't really touch on in the interview but I guess is a big topic at the moment or and has been for some time actually but looking at should funders be giving out more unrestricted funding and mm. she mentioned IVAR's open and trusting commitments and not wasting applicants time but IVAR's also been doing surveys and research and I think there was another piece of research done not so long ago that revealed that out of a survey of charities most of them would rather receive half the amount with absolutely no strings attached around how they spend it should that be more of direction that more grant makers are going in yeah yeah and actually other organizations will look to large grant makers like comic relief obviously they have a public profile like no other in the voluntary sector they not only do they have the backing of huge number of celebrities they also get massive publicity for each of their events on national television mm. which is obviously a huge leg up for them and their work but yeah it's really interesting to see how they're how they're trying to just change the way they work and it was really interesting that they allowed you to get a peek behind the curtain <laughs> yes. as to what was going on there. Yeah, and satisfied my nosiness as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on now, we have Steve Downs, our news editor, with us in the studio. Hello, Steve. Hi, Lucinda. How are you? Very well, thanks. And you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Yeah. Now, you are here today to talk about hospices. Yes, I am. Just something that's caught my eye over the last few weeks, how many stories we've had about hospices. And it strikes me that they're kind of almost a, an invisible sector of the health sector overall. Other areas get a lot of attention. Your big hospitals are on the news a lot and they're the places that everybody goes at some point. And in a sense, the government wouldn't be able to take away any funding from it, wouldn't be able to make it on a different footing at all. But then you come to hospices where you have palliative care and still an area where anyone could at any point need to use the facilities. 
And yet the funding system is very different. They receive a certain amount of funding from the government, but it doesn't cover everything. And as our stories have been reporting recently, the hospice charities across the board at the moment are reporting a total £186 million deficit. Mm. One hospice charity in particular, we featured Alice House Hospice, is having to cut back end-of-life care, close some beds, because it can't afford to run them. And that means pretty drastic things for people in that community. They're looking at a £755,000 shortfall. Big reason for all of this is the same reason we come back to all the time at the moment, which is that bills are going up. Mm. And hospice care in particular is very energy heavy. Mm. So when the bills go up in that respect, when the gas bills go up, then they pay an awful lot more. And of course, the government funding doesn't go up at the same level. So the gap's getting bigger. And it, to me, just seems really sad. It's such an important, um, well, a vital thing to provide. And yet it's kind of invisible. It's the Cinderella sector, you could say. You know, it's not a very cheerful thing, but I would just say uh, if people see someone rattling a tin for hospices to put some money in it, you know, and be more aware of this sector and try to reach out and give some money to it, because I think this is a sector that's really struggling as everywhere is at the moment, but particularly, I think it's more so than any other area to me. Yeah, I mean, the cost issue for hospices is a massive one, isn't it? Just mm. in terms of the energy issue that you talked about there, obviously the, the fact that energy costs have gone up so much, obviously they are very energy heavy in terms of what they do. And the service they provide is amazing. Our hats off to those people who, yeah. who work in those places because that you know that is a tough job to do and there are various pockets of the voluntary sector that I think are really feeling the cost of living crisis and that pinch far more than others and hospices as these figures would illustrate are very much in the in the eye of the storm well that's it for this week we hope you enjoyed the first of our day in the life series if there's a particular role in the sector that you'd like us to lift the lid on, then please get in touch via the survey that's available in the show notes underneath this particular episode. And you can read the transcripts to all of our recent episodes on the Third Sector website under podcasts. And of course, if you have any ideas for future episodes, then please use the survey to pass them on to us. But for now, thank you very much to our guest, Poonam de Cruz and our producer Nav Pal. Join us again next week 